Hey guys, it's Michelle. And Brandy. And this is Spooky Shit. So this week we are bringing you a socially distanced podcast again. Um, our episode a few weeks ago where we joked about sitting on the same couch, taking turns, taking off masks, did not age well because someone got COVID. <laughs> yeah, that someone was not me. Okay, shut the fuck up, Brandy. Just, <laughs> just kidding, it was me. I got I, the Rona. Yeah, Brandy got the Rona. So then I looked up, turns out that extra iPhone and microphones are a, like a thing. So Brandy has a little special microphone now. <laughs> It's very tiny. It's very tiny. And to make it work, because for some reason, Brandy can't hear me, we were FaceTiming on computer, tablet, and both of our phones at the same time. <laughs> it's a whole mission. It is. Literally. And I can't hear myself, so it's weird. I feel like I'm tripping right now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know what? I just realized I don't know the theme for this week because I don't know what you're talking about, Brandy. A serial killer? Okay, we're talking about serial killers. <laughs> you never you never <laughs> told me who you're going to talk about. You're right, I didn't. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to start with the Zodiac Killer. And then I'm going to talk about Ivan Milat. Okay. <gasps> that was my second choice, huh? That's the guy no I was way. talking about. Oh, wait. Was it? I don't think I ever told you. I was just thinking about it. You didn't. <laughs> you, you didn't. Yeah, dude, I heard his story before, I'm pretty sure, and it's fucking wild. Warning. This episode may contain graphic details. Listener discretion is advised. Alright, so, for someone that makes a lot of jokes about the Zodiac Killer, I, like, didn't realize, I don't know fucking shit about the Zodiac Killer until I started researching. (laughs) So, the Zodiac Killer, if somehow you haven't heard of him, he's a serial killer who murdered in NorCal in the 1960s, kind of the 1970s, and we still don't know who he is, so I'm just going to start off with his known crimes. So, on December 20th, 1968, 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen and 17-year-old David Arthur Faraday were going on their first date in Benicia, California. Originally, they had planned to go to a Christmas concert at a high school a few blocks from Betty Lou's house, but they ended up changing plans. So they instead went to see a friend and then went out to eat at a local restaurant. At around 10.15 p.m., David drove the couple out on Lake Herman Road and pulled into a gravel turnout that was well known for being a lover's lane. Which, I've never been to a lover's lane, but I imagine that they are sketchy as shit. It's dark. (laughs) Creepy, and especially because around 45 minutes after pulling in, the two teenagers' dead bodies were found. Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck a lover's lane, dude. So, using the forensic data available at the time, it was suggested that shortly before 11 p.m., a car had pulled into the turnout next to the couple. It appeared that the killer had exited his car and walked over to the teens and possibly ordered them out of their car. It was suggested that Betty Lou had left the car first, likely, but when David was only halfway out, the killer had shot him in the head and killed him. Betty Lou tried to scream, or she tried to run away, but was shot five times in the back. Her body was found 28 feet away from the car. After murdering the two, the killer drove away. The murders were investigated, but no leads were found. There was uh, some hesitation on my part while we were doing that. (laughs) (laughs) On July 4th, 1969, right before midnight, 22-year-old Darlene Farron and 19-year-old Michael 
I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's Mayhew or Maju Majo. I don't know. It looks French. Wait, Mayhew sounds right. I feel like I've heard Mayhew? that before. Okay, I'll go with Mayhew. I don't know. So <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down both. I I also don't know how to like sound out the spelling I wrote for my second pronunciation. That's I just wrote M U H J O, and I was like Majo. That's definitely not what I meant. <laughs> No idea. <laughs> they parked in Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, just four miles away from the murder site of David and Betty Lou. While parked, a car drove into the lawn parked next to them, but then quickly drove away. About ten minutes later, the car came back, this time it parked behind them. The driver left the car and came up to the passenger side door of the car where Michael was sitting, carrying a flashlight and a gun. He then proceeded to shine the light into Darlene and Michael's eyes before shooting at them five times. Multiple bullets actually went through Michael and hit Darlene. So the killer then walked away, but returned when he heard Michael's moans of pain. And he shot them each twice more before getting in his car and leaving. Damn. It's fucking brutal. So at 1240 a.m. that night, the killer called the Vallejo Police Department to report the shooting and take credit for it. He also admitted to the murders of Betty Lou and David the year before. Police were able to trace the call to a phone booth at a gas station located just a few blocks from the police department, but they weren't able to identify the caller. First responders went to the crime scene, but unfortunately Darlene was pronounced dead at the hospital. Um, amazingly enough, though, Michael actually survived the attack, despite being shot in the face, the neck, and the chest. Really? It wasn't his time. It was not <laughs> his time, apparently. <laughs> So, he was able to describe the shooter as a white man around 26 to 30 years old. He had short, light brown curly hair, a round face, standing at 5'8", and weighing around 195 to 200 pounds, or maybe more. Darlene's husband was investigated, but he had an alibi at the time of the shooting. So, the I watched this movie, too, per my friend Sammy's request. Shout out, Sammy. Thank you. And, uh... I didn't know that Darlene was married till I saw the movie, and then I, like, fact-checked it, and it's true, and I was like, I guess Darlene was very popular <laughs> with the guys around there. Mm. Yeah, so that's why they thought it could have been Darlene's husband, because they're like, who is this Michael dude? <laughs> Damn, imagine you find out your wife died and she was with somebody else. Oh, it's brutal. And, I mean, nothing I read said that they were on a date. But also, it was like midnight and they were in an isolated area. It's when I read the, it said that they were there to talk. And I was like, mm hmm, sure. About what? <laughs> what do you need to talk about in midnight in an isolated area? Mm hmm. Talk about that Duke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. On August 1st, 1969, three letters from the Zodiac Killer arrived at the Vallejo Times Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. Included in each letter was one-third of a cryptogram, and in case you don't know what a cryptogram is, it's basically like a puzzle that has encrypted text in it, just like a code. So in the letters, which were full of typos, they were all basically the same, the writer was admitting to the murders and including some details about them that not everyone would necessarily know. He then says that if all of the papers don't publish his cryptogram on the front page, he'll go on a killing spree and kill a dozen people. Only the Chronicle actually published a cryptogram the next day, and they did so on the fourth page, not the front. Next to it was an article where the Vallejo police chief said that they were not satisfied that the letters were from the killer and asked for another letter providing more details from the crime scenes. 
No killing spree occurred that weekend, and eventually all parts of the cryptogram were published. Later on, a psychiatrist who read the letter said that it was likely written by someone you would expect to be brooding and isolated. <laughs> so me. I sent the letters. <laughs> it me. On August 7th, 1969, a second letter was sent to the examiner. This letter started with, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. So he actually is the one who came up with his own nickname. And it stuck, apparently. So in this letter, he includes more intimate details about the murders and says when he was on the phone calling the station, a man actually happened to walk by, which made him hang up. But then it rang again, which got the man's attention on the caller and the car. But as far as I could tell, this witness, he didn't really pay attention because he never came forward. <laughs> He also describes his method of taping a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of his gun and using it instead of a gun sight to aim. He ends the letter with, I was not happy to see that I did not get front page coverage. Included in the letter was a reference to the cryptogram from before saying, when they do crack it, they will have me. Just one day after this letter came in, a majority of the 408 symbol cryptogram was solved by Donald and Betty Hardin of Salinas, California. So, the couple had spent around 20 hours using homophonic, homophonic, <laughs> dude, whenever I read this word, I thought it said homophobic. <laughs> I thought you said that. Yeah, they were using really homophobic substitutions to find the solution, so that was kind of <laughs> fucked up of them. And, but when they did get the solution, <laughs> they called the San Francisco Chronicle to let them know and send them the soft letter with the cipher key. The Chronicle then, of course, called the Vallejo Police Department to let them know they had figured it out. FBI agents were able to crack the code themselves and agreed with the Hardens on that it translated to. So, the message said, I like killing people because it, is, because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will re be reborn into paradise and the I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. And then there's just 18 random letters. So any hesitation or like weird sentences there, they were not me. He just spelled everything wrong and put in a weird order. <laughs> Usually it's me, not now. <laughs> so the not last this time. Not this time. I mean, next paragraph it'll be me, but not this one. <laughs> <laughs> So, the last 18 letters were not able to be deciphered, but I was on this website called Zodiac Ciphers, and they believe it may have been a mistake by the killer when he was separating the letters for the newspapers. And they think it was actually meant to be, like, higher up on the page and say, lone or stray people. So, with this add-on, the part would read, I will be reborn in paradise and all the lone or stray people I have killed will become my slaves. Even without that added on, that's just, like, insanely fucking creepy, and it didn't reveal anything about the killer's identity. <laughs> on September 27th, 1969, two Pacific Union college students, 20-year-old Brian Hartnell and 22-year-old Cecilia Shepard, were having a picnic at Lake Berryessa. They were in a remote area on a small island when a man walked up to them. He was white, about 5'11", weighing more than 170 pounds, with greasy, combed brown hair. He had on a black executioner-style hood with clip-on sunglasses over the eye holes and something like a bib on his chest that had a 3x3 three three cross-circle symbol on it. He was also carrying a gun and plastic clothesline, which he had cut beforehand. 
He told the couple that he was an escaped criminal from a jail that had a two-word name in either Colorado or Montana, and that he was on the run after killing a guard and stealing a car, so now he's going to take their car and run to Mexico. So, the man told Cecilia to tie up Brian before tying up Cecilia himself. He then went to check Brian's ties and tighten them, as Cecilia obviously didn't tie them that tight, which I wouldn't either, honestly. So, Brian just thought that this was some, like, weird-ass fucking robbery until the man pulled out a knife and started to stab them both. He stabbed Brian six times and Cecilia ten times. He then hiked back up to the road about 500 yards away to Brian's car, on which he drew with a black felt-tip pen the cross-circle symbol that was on his outfit, and underneath, Vallejo slash 12-2068 slash 74-69 slash September 27th, 69 dash 630 slash by knife Ooh, struggled there man I, but i got there Damn. i got there in the end <laughs> basically just the dates that he's killed people and where <laughs> so at 7:40 p.m the man called the napa county sheriff's office from a payphone 27 miles away and told the operator that he wished to report a murder no a double murder it's fucking dramatic ass honestly and he did admit that he committed the murders so within minutes, the payphone was found by a radio reporter. It was only a few blocks away from the sheriff's office, actually, and the phone was left off the hook. A palm print was taken from the telephone, but unfortunately, a match for it was never found. Meanwhile, at the lake, a fisherman and his son had heard Brian and Cecilia screaming for help nearby and found them, then contacted park rangers. When the first responders, two Napa County sheriff's, sheriff deputies, arrived, Cecilia was still conscious and was able to describe in detail what their attacker had looked like. Unfortunately, while en route to a hospital in Napa, Cecilia slipped into a coma that she never woke up from. She died two days after her attack. But Brian at least was able to survive the stabbing and tell his account of what had happened. A Napa County Sheriff detective named Ken Narlow worked on solving the case for nearly 20 years until his retirement in 1987, but he was never able to find the killer. So, I think the most terrifying part for me about this particular attack was that it actually happened pretty fucking early. So, for the first time in my life, I actually did, like, extra research. Uh, the lake where Brian and Cecilia were stabbed was, according to my iPhone map, 44 minutes away from the Napa County Sheriff's Department. This is not counting the time it took for him to, like, walk up to the car, write on it, potentially, like, make any stops to clean up. I don't know. And I doubt he was speeding at all because he wouldn't want to draw attention to himself. So, that means the absolute latest that he left the lake was probably, like, 6.56. And I looked up the sunset in Napa that day in 1969, and it was 6.58 p.m., which means it wasn't even that dark, if it was dark at all, when he fucking stabbed these people to death. Well, one of them to death. And that just... Damn. I know, because you imagine bad things don't happen during day, <laughs> right? Usually. I know. So you would that think. Just, I know, that freaked me out. And then I also thought it was extra creepy imagining his outfit. And just seeing that during the day. So here is a picture, Brandy, of what they imagine he looked like. Can you see? Yeah. It's terrifying. Very. If you just see that during the day when you're at the beach. So you should watch the Zodiac movie, actually. If you have an Amazon Prime, you could see it. I it's... think I've seen it. Is it with Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I've seen it a while ago, but oh, I shit. remember watching it. I'd never even, like, heard of it, and then... Really? Yeah, and then Sammy mentioned it, and I watched it last night and this morning, and it was really good, but it was 
sad because I've said this before, like researching this stuff, it just seems like it's just words. It doesn't seem real. And then you see actors and I know obviously they're not the real victims, but still seeing somebody play out how this really went down. You're like, oh my God, this is fucking sad. Mm-hmm. But That's why I stick to Disney movies. Yeah, Disney <laughs> movies. And then you research for hours for this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Balance. Yeah, in my in my meantime or my down my meantime my downtime, I watch kid stuff or yeah. anime. Yeah, see that's where it's at, dude. <laughs> when you're not <laughs> researching murderers, that's what you do. <laughs> and I'm sure exactly. you'd be at Disneyland every weekend if you could. Oh, I would. I miss Disneyland. I'd be throwing all my money away. Oh yeah, I now recognize they're probably not even going to reopen this year, honestly. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to get that vaccine. Just shoot me up, bro. <laughs> just let me in anywhere. I need my fix. I need it. I need my COVID vaccine fix. <laughs> it's okay. It, I already got it. Oh, if only. <laughs> okay. It's not that bad having COVID. I thought you said you were like dying. For the first few days, yeah, I was dying. <laughs> but I mean I guess it just depends on your immune system because for some people it's worse Oh yeah, like my course. aunt got it and she was like she couldn't walk like two steps without getting out of breath oh my gosh dude she, 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 was, she ended up going to the hospital just because she was like really bad holy shit no I just the main thing that sucks is like the headache oh you had a headache the whole time yeah, you basically feel, like, hungover. Ew. <laughs> it's weird. You kind of feel, like, a little nauseous, but you know you're not going to throw up, and then you have a headache. That sounds but like But other like than the that, worst. like, it, 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 I mean, I guess it is. It just, it's kind of, like, annoying. Yeah. Because you can't, like, you know, do the hungover precaution or, like, remedies because you're not hungover. Yeah, and you can't just throw up in a feel better because you won't feel better. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the first few days, I felt like shit. I had a fever. And actually, it was weird. It was funny because the day we all got tested, we actually tested negative. Oh. But then we had we had seen Leah and she tested positive. And we were like, ah, shit. But we got tested again. And literally <laughs> the, um, the day that we got tested again, that night, I started feeling like shit. Like uh, we were on the in the living room watching movies, uh-huh. and like I was just down on the couch, and I I could, like feel it like coming. I just felt like super cold, and I had I turned I had a fever. Oh my um, gosh! And I kept getting um, the notification on my Apple Watch that my heart rate was like beating too going too fast, and I'm not doing anything. That is stressful to have that. <laughs> happening yeah it was i kept like it kept like giving sending me like every like half an hour they're like it was my heart rate was at, like 120 and i literally oh was like not doing anything i was laying down i feel like that's just gonna make your heart rate worse because then you get scared and then you're like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> yeah i was telling my mom it's like fuck mom she's like shit and she's like, well, yeah, your body's, like, trying to fight the virus right now. So your oh heart's, God. like, working overtime. But anyway, was I, like, telling a story or something? I feel like I might have been. 
Um, yeah, I didn't believe you were talking about the Zodiac Killer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'll get back to that. My bad. I'm not <laughs> distracted. No, I have a question, so I'm good with <laughs> it. <laughs> so, on October 11th, 1969, a white man entered a cab driven by a Paul Stein and asked to be driven to the intersection of Washington and Maple Street in Presidio Heights, a neighborhood in San Francisco. Paul drove him one block past the requested Maple and said taking the passenger to Cherry Street for unknown reasons. And around 9.55, the passenger shot Paul in the head, took his wallet and car keys, and ripped off a bloodstained section of his shirt. While this was happening, three teenagers across the street actually saw it all going down and called the police. They then noticed the man wiping down the cab and walking towards the Presidio. They described him as being a 25 to 30 year old white man with a crew cut who was around 5'8 to 5'9. And this is actually the last confirmed murder by the Zodiac Killer. So two blocks away, two officers were responding to the call when they noticed a white man they guessed to be around 35 to 45 who had a crew cut and was around 5'10. The man was stepping onto a stairway leading up to the front yard of a home on the street. They continued to drive past him because for some fucking reason the dispatcher had messed up and told him that they were looking for a black suspect. Like, how do you mess that up so bad? Not even close. I know. They ended up correcting it later. It was like, okay, they're probably not even going to remember him now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, originally this murder was thought of as a robbery gone wrong until a few days later, the Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac Killer. This one containing a piece of Paul's blood-covered shirt and taking credit for the murder. In it, the killer says that had officers searched the park correctly, they would have found him instead of, quote, holding road races with their motorcycles, seeing who could make the most noise. And he ends the letter with a threat saying, school children make nice targets. I think I'll show you, I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. No. Yep. Fucking terrifying. If I heard that, I would have been like, guess you guys are homeschooled now to every child in my family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. Close down schools. Right? So, sketches of the killer were drawn using the help of witnesses, and the San Francisco Police Department estimated that they have investigated around 2,500 suspects of the killer over the years. On October 20th, 1969, at 2 p.m., a man called Oakland Police Department claiming to be the Zodiac Killer. He demanded that one of two famous lawyers appear on a local talk show. One was unable to make it, but Melvin Belly did appear on the show, and eventually someone called several times saying that he was the Zodiac Killer, and he said his name was Sam. He asked Melvin to meet him in Daly City, but never arrived. On November 8, 1969, another cryptogram was sent to the Chronicle. This one came along with a short note saying, This is the Zodiac speaking. I thought you would need a good laugh before you hear the bad news. You won't get the news for a while yet. P.S. Could you print this new cipher on your front page? I get awfully lonely when I'm ignored. So lonely I could do my thing. And on the side, written in different pen, it said, and I can't do a thing with it. So, his thing is murder. If that wasn't clear. <laughs> he refers to it as... Kinda... You got it? You got it, Brandy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it. kind of figured it... that out. And I was like, it's subtle. Will you catch on? <laughs> <laughs> he frequently refers to it as his thing. so unlike the other coded messages the cryptogram that came along with this note took 51 years to solve so it was literally only solved on december 5th 2020 by an international team who submitted their research to the fbi which was verified and 
I heard about this when it happened and I was like, oh shit, like I wonder what it says. And people turned into a meme. They were just saying dumb shit. But uh, <laughs> so the note read, I hope you're having lots of fun trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because now I have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. So they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life is life will be an easy one in paradise death. Unfortunately, the FBI also said that this Dakota message gave them no new clues to who the Zodiac Killer could be. So, imagine, like, that's such a fucking bummer for 50 years. So, you waited to call this and you decode it and he's just like, ah, yes, paradise and my sleeves and you'll never know who I am. I'd be like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Yeah, that would suck. Such a waste of time. Uh, On November 9th, 1969, just one day later, the Chronicle received another letter. I'm going to read you the entire beginning section of this one because I thought it was pretty spooky. This is the Zodiac speaking. Up to the end of October, I have killed seven people. I have grown rather angry at the police for their telling lies about me. So I shall change the way the collecting of slaves. I shall no longer announce to anyone. When I commit my murders, they shall look like routine robberies, killings of anger, and a few fake accents, etc. The police shall never catch me because I have been too clever for them. One, I look like the description passed out only when I do my thing. The rest of the time, I look entirely different. I shall not tell you what my disguise consists of when I kill. Two, as of yet, I have left no fingerprints behind. Contrary to what the police say in my killings, I wear transparent fingertip guards. All it is is two coats of airplane cement coated on my fingertips, quite unnoticeable and very effective. Three, my killing tools have been bought through the mail order outfits before the ban went to effect, except one, and it was bought out of the state. He then basically just talked shit about how he was hiding on the park, but the cops didn't check thoroughly, so nobody noticed him. A couple paragraphs in, he says something interesting. Uh, He wrote that this must be printed in the paper, too. So it says, two cops pulled a goof about three minutes after I left the cab. I was walking down the hill to the park when this cop car pulled up and one of them asked me over and asked if I saw anyone acting suspicious or strange in the last five to ten minutes. And I said yes, there was this man who was running by waving a gun and the cops peeled rubber and went around the corner as I directed them. And I disappeared into the park a block and a half away, never to be seen again. So it was actually... I know. It was actually after this that one of the officers who claimed to have seen a white man on the night of the murder actually came forward and wrote a memo explaining what happened. But he said that they didn't talk to him. So I don't know if they're lying to cover their asses or if the Zodiac Killer is just being exaggerative, which he does. (laughs) It could be both. Yeah, maybe a little bit of both. So the murderer then goes on to write about a death machine he was making, which just seems like a big bomb. Um, along with a drawing of it, he ends the letter with, P.S. Be sure to print the part I marked out on part three, or I shall do my thing. So he wanted them to publish about the cops talking to him. On December 20th, 1969, exactly one year after he murdered Betsy Lou and David on Lake Herman Road, the Zodiac Killer sent a letter to the celebrity lawyer I mentioned before, Melvin Belly. In it, he pled for his help, saying how he was afraid he was going to lose control and take his ninth and possibly tenth victim, And it mentions that for now, he isn't going along with his bomb plan as it's harder than he thought. To prove that he was the real deal, he included another piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt in this letter. And what's extra eerie about this letter is at the time, the Zodiac only had seven confirmed victims. Like, five died to survive. So, he just said, like, his ninth and tenth. So, that means that there's somebody that he missed. 
like that the police miss up till this point potentially so while the stories of confirmed cases stopped the letters from the serial killer did not on april 20th 1970 he wrote again to the chronicle saying that he now had 10 victims even writing at the bottom p.s i hope you have fun trying to figure out who i killed he also said his bomb idea was a dud but he was working on a new one which he drew a picture of in this letter, he included another 13-character cryptogram, which he said contained his name, although it was never solved, and in my opinion, it probably didn't say shit. It's probably just like, ah, paradise slave, it's gonna be fun. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could see that. Oh, yeah. So, on April 28th, he sent a card to the Chronicle saying if they didn't want him to use his new bomb, they needed to tell everyone about his bus bomb idea and the details, and he requested that he would like to see some nice zodiac buttons around town, as it would cheer him up considerably. On June 26, 1970, he sent a letter saying he was upset that nobody was wearing buttons with his circle and cross. He said he promised to punish them by blowing up a school bus, but as it was summer, he settled by just shooting a man sitting in a parked car outside. This letter included his symbol with the 12 next to it, implying he had now taken 12 lives. It also had another cryptogram at the bottom saying, The map coupled with this code will tell you where the bomb is set. You have until next fall to dig it up. And it included a map of the San Francisco Bay Area. The code was never solved and the alleged bomb was never found. So, backtracking a little bit, a sergeant by the name of Richard Radich had actually been shot a week earlier in his car at 5.25 a.m. while writing a parking ticket and he died 15 hours later. The San Francisco Police Department denies that the Zodiac Killer was involved and a possible suspect for the murder was never charged because there was a lack of evidence. So, it could have been him or it could have been, like I said earlier, he just likes to talk, basically. <laughs> the next letter on July 24th, he references taking a ride with a woman and her baby for a couple hours before burning her car. Months earlier, on March 22, 1970, a 22-year-old woman who was seven months pregnant named Kathleen Johns was driving with her 10-month-old daughter when a car rolled behind her and began to honk and flash its headlights. She pulled over, and the man did as well and came up to her explain that her right wheel was wobbling, but he could fix it for her. After finishing up, he drove off, but when Kathleen attempted to pull out, her wheel fell off, basically. The man came back and asked if, she could get a ride, if he could give her a ride to the gas station for help, and she agreed. During their ride, they drove past several gas stations, but he made no attempts to stop. Anytime Kathleen would ask him about it, he would change the subject. Vroom, vroom. Damn. Sorry, I have a window open. I was gonna say, it sounds like my apartment. <laughs> oh, it might be. It could have been both. Right. So, they drove like this for 90 minutes, going back and forth around back roads near Tracy, California. When he finally had to stop at an intersection, Kathleen took her opportunity to grab her baby and jumped out of the car and went to hide in a field. Failed. <laughs> Suddenly country. She went to hide in a field. So, it's unclear based on differing reports if the man just left or if he took a flashlight and began to look for her, insisting he wasn't going to hurt her before giving up and leaving. After he was gone, though, she got another ride to the police station in Patterson, where she made a report to the sergeant on duty about her kidnapping. While there, she noticed a sketch of Paul Stein's killer and recognized him as the man who abducted her. This apparently really freaked out the sergeant to the point where he, like, sent Kathleen into a restaurant to go and wait in the dark because he was scared that the Zodiac Killer was going to come back and kill all of them. When they found Kathleen's car, it had been gutted and torched. 
So a letter from July 26, 1970 claims 13 victims, and he asked that if nobody is going to wear the nice buttons with his circle cross, how about they wear some nasty buttons or anything they could think of? He then goes on to detail how he's going to torture his victims when he's in paradise. He wrote at the bottom, P.S. The Mount Diablo Code concerns radians and number inches along the radians. And that's like a math thing, I don't know. But I saw in 1981, a researcher named Gareth Penn discovered that when placing a radian angle over the Zodiac's map, he uh, saw that it pointed to two of the locations of his attacks. I don't know what a radian angle is, though. I tried to read about it and I was like, two math. (laughs) (laughs) On October 7th, a card arrived at the Chronicle. This one had the killer symbol and a cross drawn on it, reportedly... Reportedly with blood and had 13 hole punches in it to represent his 13 victims so far. He also wrote in it, some of them thought it was horrible. On October 27th, a Halloween card from the Zodiac Killer was sent to a Chronicle reporter named Paul Avery who had been covering the case. In the card, it seemed to list his mean of killing with by fire, by knife, by gun, by rope. This was obviously worrisome because by now there had been no deaths attributed to him using fire or rope. He also wrote, Peekaboo, you are doomed. This threat was definitely taken seriously, and Paul actually began to carry a gun afterwards. There was a front page story on this card in the Chronicle the next day, um, and I thought this was funny. His colleagues made tons of buttons that said, I am not Paul Avery, that everyone on the Chronicle staff began to wear, including Paul Avery. <laughs> that's funny. It was so fucking funny. Because I saw that in the movie, and I was like, there's no way that's real. And I looked it up, and I was like, oh my god, it was real. <laughs> smart it is (laughs) he'll never know so not long after this paul received an anonymous letter pointing out similarities between the zodiac killer's activities and the murder of a woman named sherry or shuri they kept saying sherry in the movie but spelled like shuri so i'll just go sherry uh sherry joe bates who was murdered four years before on november 16th 1970 he reported on this in the chronicle as well so let me tell you guys a little bit about the murder of sherry joe bates Sherry was an 18-year-old student at Riverside Community College who had been in the school library until closing at around 9 p.m. on October 30th, 1966. Some witnesses later said they heard screaming there at around 10.30. The next morning, her body was found not too far from the library in an isolated location. She had been beaten, stabbed, and nearly decapitated by a slashing wound. It was found that the wires in her Volkswagen district distributor cap had been pulled out so it's theorized that the killer had messed with her car waiting for her to drain the battery by trying to start it then offered her a ride before killing her a student said they had seen sherry's car driving the direction of the library at around 6:10, closely followed by a bronze 1965 or 1966 model oldsmobile another student said that she had seen a man about 19 to 20 years old around 5:11, lurking around the street from sherry's car sherry's car and staring at it in the night of the murder. She said she didn't know him, but she passed the exchange at brief pleasantries. Sherry was actually pretty athletic, so she was able to put up a fight, and she had her killer's hair and skin under her nails, and she even was able to tear off his watch, which was found 10 feet away from her, along with a footprint that belonged to a shoe exclusively sold in military outlets. Palm and fingerprints were also found inside her car. Despite what seems like good evidence, her killer has still never been found. A month after Sherry's murder, the Riverside Police and local newspaper received a letter from somebody confessing to her murder and describing in detail, warning that she is not the first and she will not be the last. For this letter, it's disputed if it was actually her killer who sent it or just like a super fucked up hoax. 
But a few months after her murder, a poem about killing someone was found carved at the bottom of a desk that had been in the Riverside College Library. It's not confirmed, but many people assume that this was written by the Zodiac Killer. On April 30th, 1967, Sherry's dad, the police department, and the newspaper all received similar letters saying, Bates had to die and there will be more. At the bottom of the letter, or of two of the letters, there's a symbol that looks to be the letter Z. On March 13th, 1971, around five months after Paul Avery's article possibly leaking the Zodiac Killer to Sherry Bates, the LA Times received a letter. In it, the Zodiac Killer says, I do have to give them credit for stumbling across my Riverside activity, but they are only finding the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there. He also includes a symbol with a 17 next to it. So, saying he's killed over 17 people now. Paul Avery and the Riverside Police don't think the Zodiac was involved in Sherry's murder, but they do admit that he may have written some of the letters to falsely claim credit for it. On March 22, 1971, a postcard to the Paul Avery at Chronicle claimed responsibility for the disappearance of a woman named Donna Lass in Lake Tahoe. Donna Lass went missing on September 6, 1970. She was a nurse at the Sahara Tahoe Hotel and Casino and on the day of her disappearance worked until 2 p.m. Later that day, her boss and her landlord both got calls from an unknown man saying that she had a family emergency and had left town. She was never seen again and her body has still not been found. On November 13, 1972, the Vallejo Times-Herald ran a story about two more possible victims of the Zodiac Killer, 18-year-old Robert Domingos and 17-year-old Linda Edwards, who had been murdered on June 4, 1963. The two, who were actually engaged, had been skipping school as part of a senior skip day, but rather than go hang out with other students, they decided to go hang out on an isolated beach instead. Also, I read it and I was like, how fucking 1960s is it for two teenagers to already be engaged? When they're still in school. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. That's wait. still not a thing? No. Yeah. I, I was like, wait, you and Hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> we were 18. 18? Were you still when in we school? Oh, yeah. I thought you meant when we got in engaged. College. Oh, okay. No. You guys were friends in high school though, right? Literally like the end of senior year. Oh, shit. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I literally met her, well, I guess it was my senior year. I met her in, I think, November of 2014. But we didn't really start hanging out until, like, literally, like, December, like, the end of 2014. Oh, damn. Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway, that threw me off. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's believed that the killer had tried to bind these two teens before they were able to free themselves and try to run when they were both repeatedly shot in the back and murdered. He dragged both of their bodies to a small nearby shack that he tried but failed to burn to the ground. Their bodies were found the next morning. Another couple some people online think could have been the victims of the Zodiac Killer were 35-year-old Enidine Molina and 37-year-old Furman Rodriguez. The two were parked in a secluded area when it appears that someone ordered them out of their car and murdered Furman before abducting Enidine. He then drove her a few miles out before he either made her get out or she potentially tried to run. Regardless, the killer seems to have run after her and shot her in the back, killing her. Upon investigation, it was discovered that in the weeks prior to the murders, the two of them seemed to have been followed by the same man and been receiving phone calls from someone who never spoke, only breathed heavily into the phone. These calls continued to harass their families even after they were killed. There were some suspects, including Enidine's ex-husband and a potential stalker she had, but this case still remains unsolved. 
This one I actually strongly believe could be the Zodiac Killer as this is like almost identical to the attack at Lake Berryessa years before. Or years after actually. This one would have been first. So 24-year-old John Franklin Hood and his fiance, 20-year-old Sandra Garcia, were enjoying an evening at a beach in Santa Barbara on February 21st, 1970 when they were attacked. A man attacked them with a four-inch knife and stabbed them both to death. Their case still remains unsolved and does bear similarity to other Zodiac killings. In the early mornings of July 5th, 1970, three young men, 17-year-old Thomas Victor Dolan, 19-year-old Thomas Hayes, and 19-year-old Homer Clyde Chadwick were sleeping on the beach in Santa Barbara after hitchhiking over from San Francisco. In the middle of the night, the three of them were attacked and hacked, which I'm assuming means like a knife. Um, they were hacked to death. Two of the boys died, but Thomas Hayes was somehow able to survive. No arrests were made in connection to this attack. And another possible victim of the serial killer is Betsy Artsma, who Brandy actually talks about in our 50th episode. So go listen to that, guys. But basically, she was stabbed in the chest in a school library. It's a fucking crazy case. I would suggest you just go listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> another letter from the Zodiac Killer arrived, but not till a few years later on January 29th, 1974. In this one, he praises the movie The Exorcist as being the best satirical comedy he had ever seen. He also writes, Me 37, San Francisco Police Department 0. Though more letters were received through the years, this is the last one that many people consider to genuinely be from the killer himself. There are tons of possible suspects, and some ideas seem credible, but others not so much. And there are even those who think that he wasn't a serial killer at all, and that a person was just writing letters pretending he had committed these murders when he wasn't involved. Which I don't see, because there's like a Zodiac sign on one of these people's cars, so at least one <laughs> so i'm gonna tell you guys about one suspect because he seemed to be one of the main ones and he had a whole section on wikipedia so i was like whoa he's a big deal <laughs> just a little bit just a little so arthur lee allen he went by the name lee had been in the navy but was discharged he also worked as a school teacher until he was fired for sexual misconduct allegations he was questioned by the police in 1969 about being, like, involved with the Zodiac Killer, and again in 1971, after someone had tipped the police off about him, saying that Lee would talk about wanting to kill people and using a flashlight on his gun to aim it, exactly the way the serial killer did. Allen wore a Zodiac brand watch, which could have inspired the name the killer eventually gave himself, and the circle cross symbol I kept mentioning earlier just so happens to be the same symbol that the watch brand used. And if that is why, that is the most uncreative thing in the world. <laughs> so, he owned guns of the same caliber that the Zodiac Killer used, and even told police about bloody knives he had in his car that he said were used to kill chickens. In an interview with the police, he said he had been in the area of Lake Berryessa scuba diving when Brian and Cecilia were attacked. And he has been described as being fixated on young children and angry at women, and reportedly never had a girlfriend or wife in his whole life. So... This one is a farther stretch, but apparently Lee was ambidextrous, so some people do theorize he could have written the Zodiac letters with his other, like, not usual hand. Lee was investigated again in 1991 after an informant said he had bragged to him about killing a cab driver. That same year, Michael Mayhew, or whatever I decided to call him, he had been, like, the guy earlier that survived being shot by the Zodiac killer. He was interviewed again, and this time he was shown a photo lineup and asked to identify, like, who shot him. And he identified Arthur Lee Allen. 
When asked why he never identified him before, he was told that the police had never shown him a picture of Lee before. But according to police, they consider his his identification to be weak. Probably because it was like 20 years old at that point, honestly. So while this all seems like super good evidence against Lee, there's some things that point to him not being the killer. Namely, his fingerprints not matching those found in Paul Stein's cab, his palm print not matching the one on Zodiac Killer's letter, and his DNA not matching the partial DNA profile they had taken from saliva on the letters. There were also two searches done in his home, but nothing there to incriminate him. His handwriting from both hands was also not a match, and he didn't match the descriptions witnesses had given of the Zodiac. I read a quote that summed up Lee perfectly, and it said, Alan seems like a good suspect as long as you only get the information from people who think he's guilty. So, he he did do a lot of shady shit, but maybe not murder. <laughs> or what if he did the murdering, but somebody else did the writing? Oh my god, I didn't think about that. You've taken us down a dark <laughs> path, Brandy. <laughs> So, as of now, the Zodiac Killer case is still open in Napa County and in Riverside. In 2018, the Vallejo Police Department expressed interest in using DNA from the back of the stamps on the Zodiac layers to hopefully collect and compare it using genetic genealogy, similarly to how it was used to catch the Golden State Killer. And if you guys want to hear more about that, I actually talked about it in our episode that I mentioned before, um, 50th episode, America's Sweatheart. So, anyway... To date, there have been no updates on matches found from those DNA samples. And I think the only possibly possible way we'll ever get answers about if he was a murderer or not, or if he wasn't, like, who the murderer was and why he stopped, is if they're able to find a match through genealogy DNA. But for now, we're just going to have to wait. <laughs> and whenever you're ready, Brandy, it's your time to shine. No. No. <laughs> And if anyone has any complaints about how Brandy sounds, just be grateful. It doesn't sound how it sounded in March last time we did this. Oof, that was horrible. That was so bad, and we did, like, f- multiple episodes. We don't talk about that time. That, that, that didn't happen. <laughs> that it didn't happen. If you don't talk about it, it didn't happen. Exactly. <laughs> Alright. So, start? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, let me make sure I'm okay. recording. I'm pretty sure I am. Okay, I was just double checking. Oh. I am recording. Ooh, imagine. <laughs> That'd be so fucked up. I wouldn't even finish tonight. I'd be like, Brandy, I'll call you tomorrow. <laughs> be like, fuck, dude, I gotta like, repeat my whole yeah, story. Yeah, no. I would need a day to recover and like practice in the mirror because I fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> I was struggling. All I right. could not do that again. Oh, <laughs> uh, dude, that'd be rough. Yeah, no. So, now I'm going to talk about Ivan. I found out that a lot of people actually mispronounced their last, his last name. Because hmm. the, the way it's spelled, you, it's M-I-L-A-T. Yeah. A lot of, I guess a lot of people say Mil-At. Mm-hmm. But I guess it came out that you actually pronounce it Millet. Really? Like, like, kind of, like with the E pro- pronunciation. Yeah, yeah I was kind of like, oh shit. So I was like, oh, let me uh make sure I <laughs> note that. <laughs> I thought it was going to be fancy. You're like, Malay. <laughs> Some shit. Well, he's he's actually from uh, Cro- Croatian descent. His dad oh. was from Croatia. Okay. Sick. Or Croatia. Yeah. yeah. Croatia. Croatia. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It sounds extra fancy. (laughs) Fucking up shit. Anyways. (laughs) Ivan Millet, a.k.a. the backpack killer. Ugh. Or murderer. Miller. Jesus. Great sport. Milliter. That's how you pronounce his last name, right? Milliter? (laughs) Milliter. (laughs) So, Ivan Robert Marco Millet was born on December 27th, 1944, in Guildford, New South Wales, Australia. He was the fifth of 14 children. Fuck. Yep. Jesus. Um, so this is not super relevant, but I thought it was kind of crazy. Um, his mom was actually way younger than his dad. Um, they were 18 years apart. Ooh. When they married, he was 34 years old and she was only 16. Oh my god. Yeah. Creepy. I was like, what the fuck? And also another weird fact, they both died at the age of 81. Whoa, okay. (laughs) So 18 years apart, like they literally died. That is so strange. I was, yeah, I was No, that is really weird. (laughs) I was like, what the fuck? Super likely. Right? <laughs> um, anyways, I guess out of the 14, there were 10 boys and 4 girls. Okay. That's a lot of kids. I know, I'm trying to process. I'm like, oh my god. Nightmare. I mean, it is a lot, but then I think about my grandma. She had 11. You know that That's extra 3 is gonna seem minus. You're right. Hard. It seems like way more. <laughs> Every every one that you after that you add after just one kid is infinitely worse. <laughs> Actually, after zero, <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but yeah. Um, let's just say that local police were pretty familiar with the boys. Oh no. Yeah. Get into trouble. Ivan actually displayed antisocial behavior at a young age. Um, he was interesting, to say the least. Oh. By <laughs> by age 17, he was in Juby for Juby. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. And Juby. That's the perfect episode name Juby. already. <laughs> he was in Juby for theft. Oh. What age was this again? 17. Fuck. Um, at 19, he was involved in a break-in at a shop. Um, at 20, he was sentenced to 18 months for a break and then break and enter. I wrote that weird. <laughs> but for breaking and entering. A burglary. And a month. In a burglary. <laughs> <laughs> a robbery. It's been a second. <laughs> oh, I lost my face. Oh, and a month after he was released. So, like, after his 18 months were up. Uh-huh. He was arrested for driving in a stolen car and sentenced to two years of hard labor. In September 1967, at the age of 23, he was sentenced to three years for theft. He just liked to steal. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's more, but... Um, You're just telling us about April this master 19- thief, that's all. <laughs> no, he's a killer. A killer. A killer. In April 1971, he was charged with the abduction of two 18-year-old hitchhikers and the rape of one. Oh, suddenly a awful fucking turn. Oh, mm-hmm. fuck. 
While waiting trial, he was involved in a string of robberies with some of his brothers. He then faked his his suicide and fled to New Zealand for a year. He was rearrested in 1974 for the charges, but he won at trial with the help of his family's lawyer, John Marsden. Did his family, like, have money? Yeah, they did. He, I forgot what his dad did, but, like, they were pretty okay. Oh. Like, especially when they were older, they all had, like, their own homes. Whoa. Um, I'll get, I'll get more into it, but his lawyer, John Marsden, was freaking vicious. So, it turns out that this lawyer was, back then, he was closeted gay man. Uh And went to a gay bar and saw the two like hitchhikers that were basically oh the victims mm-hmm. he saw them there and basically in court like the next day or whenever it happened he outed them in court as oh. lesbians and basically were like relied on the jury's prejudices Bre- how do you say that predit you got to say homophobia <laughs> yeah that yeah <laughs> <laughs> To attack their credibility. Oh my god. That's really sad. So, yeah, he basically used that. I mean, I'm not even sure if they were actually lesbian. But, like, that's pretty fucked up. And he's a fucking gay man. Dang. That's Um, fucked up. No solidarity here in the LGBT community. mm -hmm. That's sad. I actually read that um, a little bit before he died, he was invited by another lawyer to... Like, be on the defense team of Saddam Hussein. Oh my god, this guy's wild. I was like, okay, this guy is definitely something else. One of the, in my story, because I mentioned the two famous lawyers, I don't remember which one, but one of them was um, on O.J. Simpson's defense. Oh, well. Later on, and I was like, oh damn, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, starting in 1975, he worked on an off for the Roads and Traffic Authority all over the state, which that was basically like a government agency that was in charge of maintenance of all major roads and programs and road reconstruction, construction, upgrading, and rerouting. Boring. It is boring. Yeah, I was kind of like, I've boring. never heard of this job. <laughs> I haven't either, and I we don't want to. <laughs> did you know we have something similar here? No, I did not. I, I Googled it because I was curious. I was like, hmm, like, is this a thing? And it is. It, we, I forgot what it, I already forgot what it's called, but <laughs> it's it was called something like Federal Highway or something like that. I guess it makes sense. It just sounds like a real boring job. It does. <laughs> so in 1975, the same year when he started working as like a truck driver and like he was just bouncing back and forth on yeah. jobs. He was 31. He met a 16-year-old who was pregnant by his cousin. Oh. <laughs> they got married Ew. in 1983, making him a stepfather to his nephew. Uh, what the fuck? Yeah, fucking wild. I was like, what the fuck? And then they later had a daughter of their own. Uh- but she ended up leaving him in 1987 due to domestic violence and divorced him in October 1989. I mean, I'm not surprised that he was violent with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a little side note. 
That's weird. That sounds like a reality TV show. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now to the murders. Oh, no. So, all the murders occurred in the time span of four years from 1989 to 1993. Well, at least the confirmed ones. They all occurred in the... I'm going to butcher this so bad. The Bel Angelo State Forest Area. I think that's right, Bel Angelo. I think so. Sounds legit. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll roll with it. Yeah. The Belongalo Bel Angelo. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm just going to say Belongalo. Just say Belongalo. You could even just say the National Forest or whatever. The state forest. Oh, state forest. The state forest is a total of about 3,800 hectares, oh. which is equal to about 9,390 acres. Holy shit. Which is equal to about 38 million meters. Oh, my God. I couldn't find it in feet, but it was huge. <laughs> but it's a big boy. <laughs> to say the least. It was a big boy. How many of my apartments would fit in this forest? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At least five. Five what? Acres? No, at least five of my apartments would fit in it. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. See, I'm not wrong. (laughs) You're not wrong. Technically. So there are a total of seven victims who were all reported missing but weren't found until way after... And not in the order they disappeared. Oh. Interesting, huh? So the first and second victim were Deborah Everest and James Gibson. Um, They were a young couple from Frankston, Melbourne. They were both 19 years old and went missing on December 30th, 1989. They were headed to a con fest, which is some kind of festival. and. I think it kind of reminded me of Coachella because you like go and camp. Oh, okay. Not that I've ever been, but you know. It's like they're <laughs> Just Woodstock. Just like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> so the third victim was Simone Schmidl. She was a 21-year-old from Germany who went missing on January 20th, 1991 after leaving, leaving Sydney for Melbourne. Um, I forgot to mention that, I mean, you know, back then, high hitchhiking. High hitchhiking? Hitchhiking was very common. So common. To, you know, to get from, from point A to point B. Like, yeah. It was normalized, you know what I mean? It um, never should have been. <laughs> I know. But all the, he's called the backpack murder because most of these people that disappeared were all like basically backpacking like, they were all hitchhiking they all had like their stuff because they were all like some of them were like uh tourists huh. sorry some were like tourists some of them were like trying to get to a festival you know what i mean they just had like their backpacks they're all just young and um, want to go on an adventure <laughs> yeah basically that's so sad i know every time you say their ages you don't know it's because you're reading i frown <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's sad. It's so sad. They were really young. Ugh. So the fourth and fifth 
victims were Gabor Neubauer, he was 21, and Anja Habshid, she was 20. Where were they from? They were... (laughs) (laughs) I was about to get there. Oh, sorry. They were a young German couple who disappeared on December 26, 1991, after leaving King's Cross Hostel. Um, basically, they were just leaving a hostel to go to somewhere else, to Melodora, which Aww. is another place in Australia. Yeah, whenever you said their names, I was like, German? But Brandy's making it sound really not German? It <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah. Especially, yeah, when you meet her. Right. <laughs> um, the sixth and seventh victims were Caroline, yeah, Caroline Clark, 21. And Joanne Walters, 22. They oh were God. British backpackers who were last seen at King's Cross on April 18th, 1992. Oof. hmm So on September 19th, 1992, two runners discovered a concealed corpse. And obviously they went back to report it. And the following day, police discovered a second body, 30 meters um, aka 98 feet Thank you. from the first. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I had to do a lot of conversions. <laughs> the bodies turned out to be Caroline and Joanne, identified via dental records. Oh. So they were like the last victims. That's crazy. They were the first victims. found. Yeah, I was like, what? A search of the area failed to uncover any other missing backpackers. All right, so Joanne had been stabbed 14 times, four times in the chest, once in the neck, and nine times in the back, which would have paralyzed her. (gasps) Caroline had been shot 10 times in the head at the burial site. What? Police believed that she had been used as a target practice. That makes me want to cry. I'm not silent. I'm silent because I actually don't know how to respond to that. Oh my god. Yeah, it's really brutal. Like, I told you I've heard of the story, but I listened to it, like, years ago, so I did not remember all these details. Oh. Mm. It doesn't get better, I'll say that. Oh god. In October 1993, a year later, a local man searching for firewood discovered bones in a particularly remote section of the forest. Police uncovered two bodies later identified as victim number one and two, Deborah and James. Mm-hmm. He was James was found in a fetal position and had eight stab wounds. Oh. A large knife had cut through his upper spine, causing paralysis. Stab oh. wounds to his back and chest would have punctured his heart and lungs. Fuck. And I'm guessing they know this because. I mean, obviously, it's just their, like, bones. Yeah. But I'm guessing they know, like, from fucking knife marks on their bones. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. crazy to think about. So there could have been even, like, more superficial Why? wounds that they'll never know about. Yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy to think about. Oh, my God. Or he could have been stabbed more times. Just oh. They could only see eight. Yeah. Oh, gross. Um, Deborah had been savagely beaten. Her skull was fractured in two places her jaw was broken and there were knife marks on her forehead and back oh my god 
on her mm-hmm. forehead. Oh, I can't process all this. Um, I did clearly am yeah. not remembering this story as well as I thought. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, but I guess a police were actually a little confused on why James was there. Because I guess his camera had been discovered the year they went missing. Oh. And his backpack was found 75 miles away. Oh a little, gosh. like, after they disappeared, too. Yeah. So they were kind of like, oh, shit, because they were looking elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so a month later, in November 1993, a skeleton was found in a clearing along a fire trail in the forest during a police sweep. It was later identified as victim number three, Simone. Hmm. Or it might be... No, yeah, it's Simone. I was like, it might be Simon. <laughs> Not Simone. There's an E at the end. Yes, yeah, Simone. She had at least eight stab wounds, two severed her spine, and others would have hit her heart and lungs. Clothing found at the scene was actually linked to another victim, number five, Anja. Which is crazy. Because it was found at, like, hers. It was far away, she huh? She was found. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't close. Um, but Anja's body, along with Gabor, were found three days later in a shallow graves. They were 50 meters, aka 160 feet apart. Oh my god. Which is still not close. It's not. It sounds close when you just think about it, but then that's somebody having to, like, walk that area and look for a body, and that's a lot of fucking areas to look through. Yeah. I mean, the forest is fucking huge. That's... I mean, I'll get to that later, but it's fucking, like, crazy. It was like a billion acres. So, (laughs) Andrea... Literally. (laughs) Andra had been decapitated, and despite an extensive search, her skull was never found. Ew. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Gabor had been shot six times in the head. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, So, I guess I forgot to mention that there was actually, like, hints. They obviously couldn't, like, confirm, but there was hints of uh, sexual assault. On most of the women. Ugh. That's awful. She's sad. And I really hate to say this next part. Because it's just really sad to think about. But I guess there was some evidence for some of the victims that they did not die instantly from their injuries. Oh my god. And I'm not sure what that evidence is, is. But like it's so sad to think about that some of them like suffered. You know what I mean? Just in a forest and in, like, an area that they're not used to. Yeah. So, something that Um, I wanted to ask, I don't know if you know, because whenever I heard about this before, one thing I remembered that still makes me cringe anytime you say it anyway is their spines being severed and then being paralyzed. And I always wondered, does that mean, like, he would do that on purpose and then just, like, leave them for a while before killing them? And that just... I mean, I want you to think about I it too, Brandy, because so. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Ugh. I don't know. I don't know. Sad. I took it too dark, didn't I? You did. I've always wondered that every time I read about the spines, I'm like, did he do that on purpose? Well, Ugh. I mean, I think so, because it was more than one person he did it to. Yeah, and you said that they probably didn't die instantly. Oh. Some of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the gunshot wounds to the head ones are 
pretty quick, probably. Yeah, that one, I mean, I hope. <laughs> that one freaks me out so much because even just one gunshot went to the head, like you're dead, and there's multiple times. So scary. That's overkill. Oh my god. So, police developed a profile for the killer and had a reward of 500000 for info. Because wow. at this point, they found the bodies and everything, but they didn't know who it was. Yeah. This is actually when speculations arose that their crimes were the work of serial killers. Multiple. Killer. Oh. Yes. Given that most of the victims had been attacked while in pairs and killed in different ways and buried separately. Fuck. <laughs> so they think it's like serial killers working together? Yeah, that's what they... <sighs> they had it on the table, basically. Yeah. So on November 13th, 1993, police received a call from a man named Paul Onions <laughs> from the UK. He claimed that way back when, on January 25th, 1990... He had been backpacking in Australia and had been hitchhiking. He accepted a ride from a man known only as Bill, less than one kilometer from the forest. Bill, so he accepted the ride and he said that Bill stopped and pulled out. What? I skipped part of it. Um, <laughs> I guess he like pulled over, stopped, pulled over, got out of the car and pulled out a revolver and some ropes. Stating oh. that it was a robbery. Oh, no. Paul managed to run away, but Bill pursued him and shot at him. <gasps> Paul was able to flag down a passing murderess. Um, Pedro. It's okay. Joanne Berry. Oh, my God. And he's so lucky she stopped. Right? Oh. Imagine. Well, I mean, if I were to see somebody running with some other guy behind him with the gun, yeah, I'd probably... I'd be like, jump the fucking, let's go. I'd be like, I'm not stopping, but if you could jump, you could come. But if not, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to make it. Yeah, I'm not going to die for you. But yeah, like, no. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so they sped off to the Bowral police where they described the assailant and his vehicle. I'm not sure how it all came about, but a girlfriend of a co-worker of Ivan basically pointed the police towards him. Oh. Or, like, I, I like I couldn't really find anywhere, like, what she said or, like, how, like, she even got involved. Yeah. Maybe the co-worker was talking shit about him, and she was like, that's actually concerning. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> So, on February 26, 1994, police started surveillance on Ivan Millet. Police learned that he had sold his silver Nissan shortly after the discovery of the first two bodies. Which is a little sus. Super sus. Police confirmed that he had, been, he had not been working on any of the days of the attacks... And acquaintances told police that Ivan's obsession with weapons told police of. Okay. Um, I guess he would brag about all his weapons, and he was actually into hunting, like, he was in that scene all yeah. the time, basically. Into death. Um, basically. <laughs> um, when the connection between the Belongo murders and Paul's experience... Oh, I didn't 
What the fuck, bro? You could start that sentence over. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just gonna say, they basically connected the murderers to Paul's experience. Like, they just thought they were linked. Mm -hmm. So Paul actually flew out to help and ended up identifying Ivan as the man that he knew as Bill. Holy shit. Yeah. This is a... I wrote it's a fun fact, but it's not that fun. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ivan had a brother named Bill, and I guess it was common for him to use his identity for work and, like, vehicle registrations. What the fuck? Yeah, it's kind of, like, random. That's so random. Okay. On May 22nd, 1994, Ivan was arrested at his home on robbery and weapon charges related to Paul's attack. 50 police officers surrounded his home to arrest him. And then after they arrested him, they searched um, the the house and revealed various weapons, including a 22 caliber rifle, um, parts of another rifle that matched the type used in the murders. Mm -hmm. Um, They found a pistol and a Bowie knife, which is a pretty big-ass, like, hunting knife. Ew. Like, that shit's huge. I looked up pictures. Yeah. And it's, like, huge. It's huge, which I'm guessing that's the kind of knife he used. Ew. You know, to murder. Yeah, to murder. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) To murder. But police also uncovered items belonging to several of the victims. Whoa. And while they searched his home, they also like sent more teams to search the homes of his mom and five of his brothers. Wow. So they were just kind of like sus of all of the, yeah. the family. Especially you said that they thought it could be two serial killers. Yeah. But during those searches, they found more items belonging to the victims. <gasps> oh, shit. Yep. Um, they also found a bunch of camping gear. Uh, did I mention that? I think I didn't. No. That near near the burial sites or, like, where they found bodies, they also found, like, campsites nearby, too. Oh, like, Ivan had camped out there after killing them? Yeah. Or Ooh. before. But Whoa. during the, like, blah, blah, while they searched the houses, they also found a lot of, like, camping gear and stuff. Uh-huh. But, yeah. Ew. So, initially, they arrested him for Paul's attack. They hadn't officially linked him to the other seven murders until May 31st. Yeah. And he was charged with murders. And I guess he fired his usual lawyer, um, John Marsden. Oh. And he sought legal aid. Why? He, yeah, I was kind of like, why? I don't know. He didn't say why. He probably could have actually but... fucking helped him. <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, two of his brothers, Richard and Walter, were actually tried in relation to weapons, drugs, and stolen items. Oh, wow. So they were, like, being tried at the same time. Or, like, right after they charged him with the seven murders, his brothers were, like, getting tried for drugs and weapons and stuff like that. Oh, shit. Yeah. This so, stuff they a committal found. hearing. Yeah. Hmm. A committal hearing, aka known as a preliminary hearing, 
um, for Ivan began October 24th and lasted until December 12th, during which over 200 witnesses appeared. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) That's long. Um, Based on evidence at the beginning of February 1995, he was remanded in custody until June that same year. I'm not sure what the evidence was, but I'm guessing yeah. the fact that he had some of the victims' like belongings. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> had something to do with it. Yeah, maybe, just maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, trial started on March 26, 1996. His defense team argued that, in spite of the evidence, there was no non-circumstantial proof Ivan was guilty and even attempted to shift the blame to other members of the Millet family. Oh. Particularly Richard. Oh, shit. Yeah. I was like, what does it do you, bro? Dirty, bro. And I was throwing him under the bus. Yeah, just say it was Richard. <laughs> 145 witnesses took the stand, including members of the Millet family who tried really hard to provide ab- uh, alibis. Oh, that's funny. So they were trying to cover for each other. Um, That's fucked up. He's a murderer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. On June 18th, he gave evidence himself. Not sure what it was, but after 18 weeks of testimony, on July 27th, 1996, a jury found Ivan guilty of the murders. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) I just laugh. (laughs) He was given a life sentence on each count, so seven life sentences. Wow. Without the possibility of parole. He was also convicted of the attempted murder, false imprisonment, and robbery of Paul Onions, which got six years for each, like, thing. So six years for attempted, yeah. So in total, it was 18 years. Plus seven life sentences. So it's going to be a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a while. Yeah. I guess basically the whole time, though, he was saying that he was innocent. Mm-hmm. But then also when they would, like, ask, like, if his family was involved, he was like, no. It was just me. Oh, okay. So it was kind of like, huh? He did a really bad job like, huh? pretending to be innocent. Which, which is it? Yeah. <laughs> so... I thought this was funny, but literally his first day in jail, he was beaten up by another inmate. (laughs) (laughs) About a little less than a year later, in May 1997, he attempted to escape along with the former Sydney counselor, George Savas. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But the plan obviously failed, and (laughs) this part was interesting. George was found hanged in his cell the next day. Wow. So, like, after they unsuccessfully tried to escape, George was found, like, he committed suicide. So that's they the, say. That's the guy sketchy. he tried to escape with? Yeah. Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> I'm like, that's interesting. That is. I mean, maybe he was so upset about not being able to, or he got murdered. Yeah, I mean, it could be either or. I'm not sure. <laughs> so, shortly after his escape attempt, he was transferred to a maximum security section in Goulburn, New South Wales. 
Then in November 1997, it's actually around the time I was born. Oh. <laughs> um, he made his first attempt to appeal his conviction, um, which obviously was denied. No. <laughs> he tried a total of five times throughout 1997 to 2011. Um, he tried in 97 that first time in 04, 05, 06, and then the last in 2011. Dude, no, you're a serial killer. <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting. I'll get to more things he did. Okay. So, I, I, I don't know, it's just a little side note, but I guess in 06, he was given a toaster and a TV like to have in his cell, and I guess it caused like a public outcry. People were like, what the fuck? No. <laughs> I don't know, I just thought it was funny. That but... is really funny. But I, I keep saying he was wild and interesting, which, <laughs> like, I, I, he was. <laughs> so I'll get to it. Okay. On January 26, 2009, he cut off his finger with a plastic knife, <gasps> which, side note, how the fuck you do that? Dude, so much <laughs> willpower. <laughs> like, fuck. Holy shit. Anyways, but he cut off his finger in the, with the intention of mailing it to the High Court of Australia to force an appeal. What? <laughs> They're just going to be like, don't we don't care. <laughs> okay, cool. Finger. Go get your finger sewn <laughs> back on, you fucking weirdo. <laughs> um, oh, that reminds me. <laughs> Another side note. <laughs> I just saw this the Don't Fuck With Cats on it. Netflix. Oh. Have you seen it? Uh, yes. With, about Luke, Luke, what's his name? Magnata? Something like that. that. that's crazy. Uh, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, we'll talk about it soon, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) That story is fucking wild. Very. Um, anyways, he was taken to the hospital, but returned the very next day because doctors decided surgery was not possible. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he, like, mutilated his damn finger. (laughs) To the Gross. point, like, they can't even put it back on. Ew. So, in 2001, he swallowed razor blades, staples, and other metal objects in what? an attempt to kill himself. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. It's not your normal suicide attempt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my True. god. Um, in May 2011, he literally went on a nine-day hunger strike where he lost 200... 25 kilograms which is 55 pounds jesus and in an (laughs) unsuccessful attempt to be given a playstation to be given a what a playstation (laughs) a playstation oh my god i was like am i mishearing i was like i was like are you serious dude and they're like, bro, just eat your fucking mashed potatoes. Shut up. <laughs> and then May 2019, I think he was hit with some karma. He was diagnosed with esoph- esophagus. Throat cancer. Yeah, that one. <gasps> Could call it throat cancer. <laughs> Even though it's not really your throat. Of course not. It's the whole tube from your stomach to your mouth. Much worse. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So um, symptoms often include difficulty swallowing, weight loss, and other symptoms may include pain when swallowing, a hoarse voice, enlarged lymph nodes, a dry cough, 
and possible coughing up or vomiting blood. Oh. Which sounds pretty painful. Yeah, it sounds super gnarly. Um, leading up to August 2019, he lost 200, uh, not 200, 20 <laughs> kilos, which, equal, which is equal to 44 pounds. Fuck. So in like in a matter of a few weeks, he lost 44 pounds oh because of gosh. his cancer. He had a high temperature and uh, basically his health was declining. On October 27, 2019, he died from his cancer at 4.07 a.m. He was 74 years old. Wow. Oh, I was like, damn, imagine if he was 81. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I was about to say, R.I.P. dude, and I was like, nah, I won't. <laughs> Prior to his death, he actually wrote a letter to his family requesting that the government pay for his funeral. Which was obviously denied. That's why. But I guess he ended up being cremated and his body was... Ugh. No, his, he was cremated. And they reimbursed cost to be paid from his prison account. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what did they do with his so ashes? They, like, oh, sorry. I don't know. Might talk about that next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, He denied... I already said that, but he basically denied it in theories that his family was involved. He was like, nope. He even, um, he was on a televised interview and he said, like, no, they weren't involved. I don't know if I believe it. <laughs> but yeah, police uh, maintain that Ivan could have been involved in more attacks or murders. There are about three victims they suspect he killed. Like, their cases are still open because they're, like, pretty sure it was him. Like, they're mm -hmm. actually, like, linked to him, but they can't confirm or deny because he's not alive anymore. And they can't find the body. Um, yeah. Fuck. They're still gone. And actually, his old lawyer, John Marsden, claimed on his deathbed in 2005 that he regretted... Basically helping them get out of that first time he was tried and arrested. Yep. Or arrested and tried. And he said he claims that Ivan had been assisted by his sister, Shirley Shore, in the killings of the two British backpackers. Whoa. Yeah, and no I'm one like, was even so checking pretty... the sisters' houses, huh? <laughs> I mean, there was only four of them. I know. This is a weird yeah. instance of sexism where they're like, she couldn't have helped be a serial killer. <laughs> of course, you already know there would be like that. Yeah. But yeah, I guess um, there's a total of nine cases of missing backpackers that have been um, I don't want to say linked, uh -huh. but like he, Ivan is suspected of their disappearances. Wow. Holy shit. Which is crazy. It's literally like a lot of people. Yeah, that's sad. Almost, that's a lot of people. Almost 20 people, and I feel like there might be more. Probably. It's probably people that like, it's just a big weren't reported forest. missing. Yes. Yeah, that's that's scary. And it's a huge-ass forest, so, like, they could be out there. Sucks. Somewhere. I don't want to go to Australia and find a fucking body. But, yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with the theory that there was multiple killers. Mm -hmm. Me too. I feel like another brother could have been involved. Um, 
it's just kind of like interesting to think about like the fact that some of the bodies were found really far from each other but they disappeared around the same time i mean i guess he could have tied them up and then like killed taking his time to kill each one but like why do that extra like work to drag them away from each other type thing yeah i agree I also especially because a lot of them were killed in different manners that sounds like they were each like all right you get them i get this person have fun yeah, true <laughs> It's like, you, you, here's your knife, and then here's your gun, type yeah. thing. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it wasn't just him. Yeah, I, I definitely. <laughs> terrifying dude. See it. Blech. It was a family affair. Ew. <laughs> but yeah, just a last little thing. Um, After he died, I guess his brother, Boris, quickly denounced Ivan on 60 Minutes. Mm-hmm. Um... He basically went off and was like, it's a big relief he's gone. Like, what the world re- got rid of a psychopath. Um, he got what he deserved. Dang, uh, he was dead to me a long time ago. He thinks Ivan was evil down to the bone and was motivated by money. That's uh, Boris's theory. Holy shit. I don't even think he's motivated by money because otherwise he would just shot them and that's it. Yeah, right. I think he's this year's just seen. fucked. <laughs> Very. But I do but yeah, love those brothers. That was like the last little note. Damn. Yeah, that story, like, like I said, the main thing that stuck with me was the severed spine and wondering if that was on purpose or not, because that part freaked me out so bad. I think it was on purpose. Oh god, that's so gross. On that dark note, if you guys want to email us, you can. <laughs> the spooky shit dot pod at gmail.com our instagram and twitter are spooky shit underscore pod and our website is spooky shit dash pod.com thank you for listening next week we're going to be bringing you kind of a part two to this actually we're going to be bringing some copycat killers for our stories this is our first sequel directly actually kind of <laughs> uh thank you for listening and we'll talk to you then goodbye bye Thank you.